Hello and welcome everybody who is here in person and everybody online to this Institute for Government event looking at what change we need at the next general election. I'm Emma Norris, I'm the Deputy Director here at the Institute for Government. So Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, has until the end of 2025, the end of January 2025, to hold an election. <laughs> Almost gave him a bit more time. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that the long campaign has already begun. Both Sunak and Starmer use their party conference speeches to set themselves out as the change candidates, the person that is there to fix a country that they've both argued is struggling to find its way. Starmer set out a big multi-term vision <coughs> in the Labour Party's five missions. And yesterday, Sunak set out probably his most significant political intervention for some months. At party conference, he set himself against his predecessors and pledged to break with what he described as 30 years of failed consensus. And now, just a month later, he's chosen to appoint David Cameron as his new foreign secretary. So where has that left his pitch as the change candidate? Well, today, uh, this event kicks off the Institute for Government's election programme, and we're going to be reflecting on Starmer and Sunak's opening pitches. We'll be asking what change the country needs, what change the government needs, and what change the political system needs, um, and whether any of our parties have a plan to deliver it. To have this discussion, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by a fabulous panel. We've got Kelly Beaver, the Chief Executive of Ipsos for the UK and Ireland. She's been there for over a decade, understanding, interpreting and monitoring public opinion for us. We've got Lord Peter Mandelson, um, Chairman of Global Council now. Peter, as you all know, was a minister in the Blair and Brown government, perhaps most memorably and significantly returning to government as Business Secretary in Brown's October 2008 reshuffle. I'm sure you've been asked lots about that in the last 24 hours, Peter. It was third time lucky, as you remember. <laughs> <laughs> We've got Kate McCann, who is political editor at Times Radio and has previously worked all over the place at Sky, Telegraph, <laughs> Guardian, and lots more. And last but not least, Lord David Willits, um, who is president of the Resolution Foundation and a former minister in Major's Conservative government and in the Coalition government. So, David, you've seen up close the transition from government to opposition and then back again. Okay, just a few um, housekeeping notes before we start off. So I know that lots of you are joining us online today. I will make sure that there's an opportunity for the audience in the room to ask questions. If you're joining us online, you can submit questions now and I'll make sure to ask some of those when we get to the question bit of the event a bit later. So do so online using Slido. Thank you. Okay, so David, I'm going to, to come to you first. After 13 years of the Conservatives being in power, as I mentioned, Sunak used his conference speech to argue he's the right person to change the country's direction. Is it credible for somebody who is leading a Conservative party that has been in power in some form for 13 years to frame himself as the change candidate? And should we see yesterday's reshuffle, and in particular, the appointment of David Cameron as a shift in strategy? Well, it, uh, a lot depends on what you mean by change. If you mean by change, I'm a change from previous Conservative uh, governments and Prime Ministers since 2010, and you're running against the record of a party that you are yourself associated with in government, and that's a very difficult trick to pull off. And I think actually the appointment of David Cameron, which I personally welcome, uh, makes it impossible for him to run on that kind of interpretation of his party conference speech. However, there are other meanings of change which I do think are potentially very promising. And here I have to give a, a shameless plug to the economic inquiry we're conducting at Resolution Foundation. 
Uh, but our interim report, which gives a clue to the development of our argument, was called Stagnation Nation. And if you shift from politics to economics and say what is wrong with Britain and who has a set of proposals to tackle it, what you find is that contrary to all the narrative of everything's changing, uh, no job is secure and everything, we, you find that we are in the last, since the, since the financial crash of 2008, we've had unusually low rates of job mobility, low rates of job change, low rates of shift in the relative size of business sector, low rates of shift of employment from one business sector to another. So we actually do look like a rather sclerotic, ossified economy that desperately needs some economic change. And then you start having an agenda around, for example, promoting service industries, which is our comparative advantage, um, doing, um, promoting competition, backing the, not so much simply small companies, but the small companies that are growing fast, so I think if he were to shift to an economic change message, there is something that is the basis for a coherent program in a future manifesto. And I don't see why people couldn't associate conservatives with delivering economic change as much as Labour. And just so following up on that, if what we're actually seeing is a shift to reinterpret what is meant by change, what does Sunak need to do in the next few months to really convince people that he is the leader that can deliver economic change, if not political change? Well, he's got... I think, actually, what he did with the AI summit was a great example of what is possible. It was the convening power of government. It gave us international weight. It, is, it had serious attention to a really tricky set of issues, and it's something that is both an opportunity but also a threat. Um, if he, I mean, I'm not one of his advisors, I think, I would be trying to think of key uh, businesses and technologies of the future that I could embrace and show I was getting ahead of. And I detect some of that in the King's speech. I think the regulation for driverless cars, and that's not some kind of whim, that also ties in with trying to get automotive investment back into the UK. We had a great track record of securing automotive investment from Mrs. T originally getting the Japanese in, Peter and his government doing stuff, Vince, to his credit, doing stuff. Uh, I, when I was working alongside him in Bayes, we've had a bad few years since Brexit. Being the high-tech centre where you do have the batteries, where you do promote driverless cars, you can see, so if you do it in AI, you do it, and you try to do it sector by sector, issue by issue, strategically over the next 12 months, so you become a credible, economic, positive economic change candidate. Thank you, David. So, Peter, David set out what one interpretation of change might look like uh, for, for Sunak. Presumably, Starmer has a slightly easier job in convincing people that he represents change, um, be a different party in government. But how far is he popular simply because he's not the Conservative Party? Does he have a sufficiently compelling vision for where the country needs to go that he can convince people on, on, on that as well? Yes, I think he does, but I don't think the public are yet focusing on the alternative. I think they're busy tuning out of the Conservatives. Mm -hmm. um, I think they basically stopped listening uh, to the government. But I think it will be well into next year before people focus on the election uh, and the choice they're going to make. And therefore, they will look then seriously at the alternative uh, and not now. Uh, not even the media is yet looking at the alternative. You don't get any really serious media 
examination or discussion of Starmer's five missions, but I think you will get that uh, increasingly next year mm -hmm. uh, rather than this. I think the problem um, with economic change, and it's absolutely fundamental to everything else, is that if you want to be the leader or the party or government of economic change, then you have to have an economic philosophy. I think Mr. Sunet's problem is he doesn't have a single settled economic philosophy, and I think that's the problem with the Conservative Party as a whole. They have a number of competing economic philosophies. I mean, one is one nation and the other is not one nation. One is, you know, government at your side. The other is free market. Um, one is big state. The other is small state. I mean, what is it? Um, and I think before you start advocating economic change, uh, you've got to be clearer about what your economic philosophy is, what you believe in, what you stand for. Uh, and it may be that uh, with uh, David Cameron's sort of entry to the government, which, by the way, I rather warmly welcome in, I mean, who couldn't uh, welcome a sort of contrast, which is sort of in terms of ministerial calibre and quality, sort of night and day between David Cameron and Suela Braverman. Um, so, and, and by the way, he'll be not bad internationally because, you know, he's a big beast and people will recognise him for good or, or ill and we'll, in protocol terms, we'll sort of go up in the pecking order, as it were, uh, diplomatically when he walks into a room. Uh, not to exaggerate that, uh, obviously, uh, but I think it's worth something and better having than, than not. But the point about uh, Starmer, uh, uh, I think is this, that he's essentially um, defining a number of differences uh, between his approach uh, and that of the present uh, government. Uh, Starmer favours a more active government and state in the economy uh, in partnership with the private sector uh, with a more proactive set of policies uh, to lift the levels of public and private investment in the economy, uh, which is our biggest generational challenge. Secondly, he favours closer, better relations between Britain and our European partners uh, than does Mr Sunak. Uh, that doesn't mean that we're going to sort of, as it were, rejoin the, sing the European Union or the single market uh, anytime soon, if at all, but it does mean a very different relationship, qualitatively different uh, uh, relationship. And I think the third difference that's emerging between Starmer and Sunak is that Starmer wants to change the way in which we run and govern the country. Uh, he's basically um, a decentralizer. He wants to bring, as it were, to English regions, cities and towns, the sort of decentralisation and devolved government that, we've, uh, that we introduced for Scotland uh, and Wales, whilst at the same time, by the way, completely overhauling Whitehall in order to deliver five missions in a completely different way. I think, by the way, there may be some tension uh, between emptying Whitehall of power uh, and resources on the one hand and 
overhauling and building up the capacity of Whitehall to deliver five missions. We'll see about that. But those are the differences, essentially, which I see emerging between Starmer and Sunak. Thank you, Peter. And uh, you mentioned David Cameron's return and the fact that you welcome it. Uh, what advice do you have for him on how to be a successful senior minister from the Lords in a surprise return to government? Love them. <laughs> Love them to bits. Love the Lords. <laughs> Go there, be open, be warm, be friendly, but be congenial, um, uh, and, uh, uh, and in return they'll love you back. <laughs> Can I add one supplement? Please. Which is that... About loving the Lord? No, I think that's, I think that's very wise advice. <laughs> I just wanted to add that one thing you can detect in the Lords, we understand that often the minister who is responding on behalf of the government in the Lords is, is relatively junior. You can tell if the minister who's defending some government position or other was not in the room when the decision was made. And it is very tough gig if you're turning up at the front bench and you're defending something and you've got a lot of expertise around you in the Lords and you weren't even in the room. I think one of David Cameron's advantages is that he will give the sense that when he is answering across a wide range of issues, he, is, he, has, a, he has a deep knowledge of it's what the decision was. Completely different, I agree. Kelly, I want to talk a bit more about change. Um, it's a word that we've heard a lot about, as you said, both um, Sunak and Starmer have emphasised change. Is that what the public wants? I mean, something I think that came out really strongly yesterday is that we have seen endless change, actually, over the last six years. We've seen a huge amount of political churn. Yesterday, I think we were on to our 16th housing secretaries since 2010. We've had eight home secretaries. We've had five prime ministers. The change has actually been constant. So are there particular things that the public want to see change or actually is the change they want just a return to stability and delivery? So across all of our metrics, there's something that seems to be coming through about how the public are feeling at the minute, how they feel about the state of the country, which is a real sense of declinism. One of the key metrics that I share quite frequently is that three quarters of us now think Britain is a worse place to live than it was 10 years ago. 6% think the country's getting better. That was 4 in 10 when you go back to 1998. And in fact, it's worse today than it was during the great financial crisis. So when you look at some metrics like that, and there are many others I could share with you too, that sense of declinism is a call for improvement and better. And with that is a sense of desire for change. So uh, two and three want to see change at the next election, and nine and ten want Britain to have a different set of leaders. That's not just political leadership, that's just leadership in general. And when you ask about what kind of change, part of it is to have a bit of a sense of optimism and hope in the country. That is an area where we see public attitudes, perceptions and a need. But the other is around the key issues that are facing Britain today, and the public are quite universal on the top issues being the economy, inflation, but beneath the surface of that, and if some of those economic challenges are dealt with in some degree between now and the point of an election, beneath the surface of that issue are public services, NHS, public services, and a sense that we don't spend enough and also that they are not delivering enough or delivering well enough. Um, and those are some of the key issues where people want to see change and improvement. In terms of who they think can actually deliver that change, they are more optimistic about a government led by Starmer than they are uh, a government led by Rishi Sunak today. And the, 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 sort of the views on the competence of the Rishi Sunak-led government have 
tailed off a little bit, not from a particularly high level, I must say, but they have tailed off a little bit. But it doesn't mean that they're convinced on Labour, and you see that coming through in a lot of the data as well. Just as many think Labour is fit to govern as the proportion who believe that they are not ready to govern yet. And so there is still, uh, some, some of the uh, jury is still definitely out on Labour too. Thanks, Kelly. Kate, I want to just pick up straight away on Kelly's declinism point, because I think, as she says, there is this kind of overriding sense from the public that things just aren't working at the moment. What do you make of Sunak and Starmer's kind of opening pitches that we've heard over, over the last year on that? Do they feel like they're convincing on tackling that sense of decline, that sense that the country's moving in the wrong direction? Well, I think there's a thread that goes through everything that you've all said, which is there is a lack of narrative, there is a lack of vision, and a lack of really a message of hope, I think, coming from Rishi Sunak at the moment. And you know, you, you've articulated some of the ways that he could do that on the economic side, but I actually think it's more than that. I think people want to know from the government, from the Prime Minister, not just that he's going to fix the roof, but when the roof is fixed, what next? <laughs> what, what do we do then? You know, and and I, I think consistently, unfortunately, Rishi Sunak has missed opportunities to articulate that. In the conference speech, where the messaging was conflicting. Again, in the King's speech, where I think it was very hard to pull out a credible thread, even though I agree, and I've written down here, there were pockets, but not a narrative of, of good ideas. And I, I suspect in the reshuffle, a similar thing will happen here, in that bringing in David Cameron actually goes to highlight something which Rishi Sunak is missing, which is that, that ability to lead. You know, there are lots of people who criticise David Cameron, but at least he had a thread to an extent, a, th a thing that he wanted to achieve while he was Prime Minister. And I actually think putting somebody like Cameron into your cabinet will only really expose the fact that you are still lacking a coherent message of what that change looks like. Mm -hmm. I think the problem for Labour is we actually haven't seen that from Starmer either yet. And it may be that it's too soon. That uh, There has been some credible analysis of what Labour is suggesting. But unfortunately, what happens when you try and dig into the detail is Labour is reluctant to get into it. They don't want to talk about where the billions of pounds are coming from. They don't want to talk about where it will be spent. They just want to shut that down. And in shutting that down, you again can't develop that thread. And I think that's what people are picking up on. They kind of want change, but they're not really sure what kind of change they want. And some of the things people want are conflicting too. You know, we're spending more money than we've ever spent before on public services and yet people want more money spent on public services. I'm not sure that's the answer. But until somebody can articulate what is, I think that kind of sense of just being blown around a bit will continue. Peter, I, I want to kind of just push this point on Labour and whether they really have the kind of policy depth there at the moment a bit further. That's something that we've said a lot at, at IFG as well, that we have a sense of what the five missions are, but we don't yet have as much of a sense of what that really tangibly means in terms of policy. Now, you've said that it's not the right moment, actually, that we should be waiting um, a bit further into next year to hear that. Was that how it worked? Um, sorry, I didn't actually say that. I said it would be next year before people focus sorry, you're quite on right. what people yeah. are saying. I mean, uh, I think the Labour Party is actually saying quite a lot. Sometimes I feel they're saying too much. Um, uh, but uh, uh, because you've got to work out very clearly and bottom out what you're saying before you start uh, pronouncing, I I in my view. Um, sorry, what was your question well, before so I, I said, rudely yes. interrupted you? I know, you've anticipated my question perfectly because my question was going to be exactly that. If we look back to 1992 and 1997, mm. 
how much detail had Labour got into at this point in the electoral cycle then? Are Labour about right now? Do they need to be offering more? At what point should they be setting out that kind of detail? Or do you think they're already doing so? In 1992, we were both not ready and too detailed. Mm -hmm. uh, in 92, we hadn't really bottomed out quite what uh, the non-1983 manifesto, what a Kinnock Labour Party and its philosophy uh, uh, really meant. Um, uh, uh, there were areas of policy where we had got rid of the vote-losing policies, like you know, unilateral nuclear disarmament, um, renationalisation of everything in sight and leaving the European Union and all those other things from the 1980s, which we had successfully um, ditched or reversed. Uh, so we were a plausible, semi-credible uh, party for government. And then we came in with a shadow budget in which we were very specific about what we were going to do with child benefit, what we were going to do with pensions, and indeed how it was going to be paid for, yeah. uh, which was a combination of putting up income tax for the higher rate uh, and also uh, removing the ceiling on national insurance uh, payments, which, by the way, would have involved a swinging uh, uh, tax increase for basically medium, lower-paid, skilled workers across the country. Uh, and, you know... And they were a bit sort of breathless uh, by by that. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, both un un underprepared and over-detailed in certain <laughs> key respects, uh, I would say. Uh, 1997, completely different. Mm. Um, there, a lot of policy work uh, had been done, drawing on a work of a quite a few think tanks, IPPR in its day, uh, and, and various others. You know, David Miliband and James Purnell and, you know, a whole raft of other uh, uh, people who did a lot of work. But, of course, what... Uh, and Gorton certainly sort of drilled down into economic and fiscal and monetary matters, um, you know, in an absolutely driven and singular way. Um, but then what Tony provided was narrative mm -hmm. and he was very very good at narrative i don't know whether any of you ever noticed um, <laughs> uh, he was a great narrative man i mean he was a superb communicator uh, uh, as well as somebody who had very clear and distinctive views about you know what he wanted the labor party to be and where he wanted to take the country and that definition of a labor party what it wasn't anymore. It wasn't a high-taxing party, and it wasn't a party, uh, in a sense, controlled by the trade unions. Mm -hmm. That's what we weren't in 1997. Uh, uh, we weren't either a party that was simply going to reverse the economic changes uh, that Mrs Thatcher uh, had uh, introduced uh, in a number of key respects. What we were going to do, though, was to unify the country, completely overhaul and improve and modernise our public services, uh, and spread prosperity more fairly uh, across the regions, through the regional development agencies we created, but also between people and groups in society. And the redistributive programme uh, of the incoming Labour government 
you know, was immense. I mean, it was profound, all the tax credits and all the other things we were doing. So you, you had a very clear sense of what we weren't and a very clear sense of the priorities that we were going to adopt. And that's what uh, I believe, I suppose I would say this, wouldn't I, is a good model uh, for, Keir, for Keir Starmer to adopt. Thank you, Peter. Um, David, I want to stay with the, with the history lessons for a moment. In, at the 1992 election, uh, what made you have been Prime Minister for about 18 months, wanted to set himself apart from a very well-known predecessor. Are there lessons that you think Sunak can draw from the major experience? Uh, well, it was a, a very successful campaign. And actually, I was involved a bit at in the Conservative Research Department at the time, and can remember the glee when the figures that, uh, well, when our smart researchers worked out there was some labor costing for how they were going to fund something, and it was an odd figure, it was a surprisingly precise figure, and it was through that enabled the detective work to recognize what the tax no, no, we were very were. generous in the yes. information. Uh, <laughs> I can still remember that moment when we thought, bloody hell, that's what they're going to do, and we had a very clear, so yeah. Um, I, I think it's a long time ago. I think the, the, there's a, there is a big difference, and it affects both parties, and it may be one of the reasons for your frustration, which is that the economic scene is so tough. And of course Blair had the two years of discipline accepting Ken Clark's uh, spending figures. But everybody knew that there was an opportunity, and he had these very ingenious uh, tax on the utilities to help fund the New Deal in the interim. Um, but it wasn't a system. It was, Ken, Ken Clark and John Major did leave behind a strongly growing economy and a healthy public finances, which where you could responsibly look forward to increases in public expenditure. We are in such a different economic scenario today. I think one of the reasons for the inhibitions about getting into detail is it is all so uncomfortable. There is no, and again, if I may say it, and we're not alone in this, but when you look at a resolution, Britain desperately needs more investment, mm -hmm. it needs more public investment, and it needs more business investment. Um, and domestic savings rate is very low, and obviously one, but not the only way of financing it, is for people to save more. Um, and there is no prospect in the short to medium term of significant increases in living standards, especially if you want to fund increases in investment. So it, it is just a much tougher environment. And I think, in a way, the emo of course, Blair was a fantastically successful prime minister, but he, he arrived in office, and the, the third way was what you could do if you were Blair or Clinton after Mrs. T or Ronald Reagan had delivered the economic reform and you were inheriting a strongly growing economy as a result. It was the next stage. Uh, up, to a, up to a point. This is a, such a different scenario where post the financial crash, post 2008, mm -hmm. the UK, but not just alone, there are indeed yeah. difficulties. And I think if anything, it's more Attlee than Blair. It's more tough times, um, shared responsibility for getting us through difficult times, which will involve sacrifices, and hopefully at the end of that, more efficient public services. Um, and that is just one where the detail is all pretty unpalatable. But that, can would I, be can a coherent, I, that would be a coherent message, but that's not the message. No. I don't really think the government can afford to be that honest about the dire state <laughs> of the economy, quite honestly. But here's the point, if I can just add a postscript to what David has said. In 1997, to be honest, 
I felt that we needed to put our foot down on the economic accelerator. You know, we were growing as an economy and we just needed to push down a bit and certainly redistribute more. Now I feel in 2023, 24, that we've essentially got to restart mm. the economy, not yeah. put our foot down on the accelerator. And that is fundamentally different and it's a very important point that David has made. And Kelly, just continuing on this point, how much honesty do the public want on this? You know, we know that there is just the most enormous tension between the state of public finances and the kind of scale of, of promise that we're seeing, perhaps particularly from Labour. Um, you know, how should that tension be, how much be managed? How much more pessimistic can they become? So I actually, so when some of our ratings, the public's attitudes to the current state of our government or the country are down with the LATAM countries, and it's not really the part in the country level index that you want to be sitting in. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the levels of pessimism and declinism that people would have an appetite for, I think, that is that they need, even if some of the hard challenges are going to be in front of us, they're going to need a very strong communicator and somebody of a sort of Blair ilk who's able to take the public through some very difficult times and build that story for them. Um, and at the minute we have, um, looking at the voting intention polls, it is a very strong Labour lead at the minute. Ours is sitting at a 20 point lead. There's variations in that, but we're in and around the middle of that pack. And so you are looking at a likelihood of a Labour government at some point in the future. We don't know when. And if that happens, we've still got 50% of people who don't really know what Keir Stammer stands for. And that, that, is, that is a problem if you're entering into a dynamic where you're going to have to take people with you, be a strong communicator, have a vision of hope, mm -hmm. as well as some critical steps in the detail that will get you there eventually. So I think not a lot is the short answer to your <laughs> what's the public appetite. Um, Kate, we've talked a little bit about 1992, 1997. Um, but there are dangers, I suppose, in always looking to history and assuming that the next public vote is going to go the way or follow the rules of the last. We've seen that with Brexit, with 2017, with 2019. Clearly, one of the unique elements of this election is the economic situation that we've just mm -hmm. talked about. Are there other unique things that we need to bear in mind for the election that we're going to see next year or early the year after that should influence the way we think about the outcome? I think the hangover from 2019 is still troubling the Conservative Party. I think that is, I mean, you're, you're seeing it, you're hearing it in Westminster a bit, but you're seeing it sort of now in the conversation about has Rishi Sunak abandoned the red wall? Mm. Are we now trying to shore up the blue wall? And those different constituencies really do value quite different things and their priorities are quite different, not all of them, but different enough to make it difficult to navigate, I think. And I come back to the same idea about a narrative, and if you don't have one, how hard it is to try and marry those things together. I think the reality is for this election, and I was reading something that George Osborne wrote, actually, after uh, you were reappointed, uh, Peter, about, and actually you could, have, you could have transplanted the two paragraphs that George Osborne had written, and you could publish them now today, and they would be applicable in this situation. And it was essentially, you know, George Osborne was saying, Gordon Brown promises change. He came in saying he was the change candidate and look what's happened. And he's just shot them in the foot. He shot Labour in the foot, this is it. Their chance is over, it's done. It's a completely the wrong strategy and there's no way out now for Labour. And I read that again today and I thought, well, you know, there will be people looking at what's just happened in the reshuffle and who will think the same thing. I, I think the reality is for a lot of people, we can talk about unique circumstances and narratives in the economy. A lot of people have made up their mind. 
a lot of people... Actually, they haven't. Oh, have they not? Actually, well, the they people... Haven't. There you go, I'm completely wrong. Actually, the fact people... check... Yeah, yeah. Well, the people, why I say that... That's the best thing the I've reason... heard all the same. <laughs> so the reason I say that, the reason I say that is because the more I speak to people, they talk about, well, I might vote Labour, I might have to think about it, I might not turn up at all, I'm not sure, I haven't decided. Mm. But I think the reality <coughs> is, for a lot of people, they're just fed up. They just want something different. I, 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 mm -hmm. I, and I, I don't know that they know what they want, but they just don't want this they want anymore. Different. They just yes. don't want this anymore. They want a government they can respect. They want a government that they feel is working for them as their interests at heart, rather than their own self-indulgent divisions and factions and personalities mm. clashes going on the whole. It's like a circus. <laughs> and people, people want to have a sense that they've got a government that they can look up to and a government that has a plan. I mean, they know how difficult it is. They know there are no quick fixes. Mm. Nobody's expecting miracles. But they do want a sense of renewed purpose and direction for the country. And that is what, uh, over the coming year, uh, Keir Starmer mm. and his colleagues have got to offer. Mm -hmm. Kelly, I want you to fact check. Have the public made up their minds? <laughs> They've made up their mind they want change, is what I was trying I think to the, say. the public want improvement better, and with that change ultimately but 50% as much as 50% are still saying they don't really know what way they would really vote they're not really clear that they've made up their mind but the voting intention polls they do show a very solid Labour lead at the minute and we know looking back at historical elections that, that about a year out it is normal for about 45 to 50% of people to not truly have made up their mind or come down firmly on one side and within the month of the actual electoral event that closes to around 20%. So there is a lot of movement that will happen over the next year. And we looked back at the electoral events since 1964. And what I can say is if history yeah. is to be repeated, and it's not always, and as pollsters, we have to remind ourselves that on a regular basis. You know, the electorate changes, how they think and feel changes, and you need to have your finger on the pulse. But if history holds, that just narrows and it narrows and the question is how much will it narrow over the next you know six months year however long it actually it could be as much as a year and a, a year and two months mm -hmm. before the election actually mm -hmm. takes place it actually narrowed also in 2010 the conservatives it had did. a substantial it did lead. they had a double digit lead uh, and uh, it narrowed before 2010 and they ended up with a hung parliament yes and a year out for 1997 election it was a 25 point lead and that narrowed to 13 but it was still enough for a majority yeah. at the time but, but the a, a very large one. The, yes. what, what, when Peter was describing the kind of characteristics that he hoped would be displayed by Keir Starmer over the next year, uh, getting on with things, being competent, no, no more pantomime, the irony is that that is part of Rishi's original proposition. Competent, technocrat, being Chancellor of the Exchequer, knows how to run things. And if you look at the upper echelons of the government now, especially after what's happened with... Uh, the senior team, I think, it, it, when Peter was describing it, I thought it is not impossible for them to deliver this in the next year. If we don't get diverted into culture wars, and I think the, what has happened to Suella Braverman over the last 10 days and her uh, commentary on what the police were doing was an example of the perils uh, of trying to fight culture wars in a country that I don't think is particularly receptive to them. And, but if you don't get diverted into, into cultural, and if you have a message about the economy, which is, yeah. yes, it's tough, but this is what, if we can, and, and of course remember that although it's not the whole story, Rishi, and I have to say, I, I, I plead guilty as well, is a bit of a techno-optimist, quite interested in, in the extent to which that innovation will in, in 
not just improve our well-being, but improve efficiency of public service. You can see a way in which this government could perform and a potential narrative that does make it better. David, I agree with you. I'm sorry to keep agreeing with your points. <laughs> um, but why is it then, if that is what Mr Sunak wants, he appoints a Minister of Culture wars in Esther McVeigh? I mean, what is going because on? Big on the, the one the, hand, you that, say, right, no more anti-trans or anti-woke and cultural wars and all this stuff. And then you appoint somebody specifically, according to the overnight briefing uh, from the <laughs> government, who's going to be in charge of cultural wars I mean, and anti-woke. I mean, what is going on? Kate, is that because he's still David, running a kind what's of what's your explanation strategy? of this? <laughs> what's your running? explanation, David? <laughs> <laughs> I've been protected by the chair. But I would say, I would say not on this, sorry to interrupt. No, no. The, if you look at... I, I, I don't... I think there is behind this a misunderstanding of the Red Wall, and I, do, I don't think that trying to fight a culture war is a productive strategy for the Conservative. I, I think it's... It's wrong at every level. Um, and it's also a misunderstanding. But, but there is a Red Wall strategy, and we'll see whether Esther delivered it, because she was a very effective campaigner in a marginal seat, I remember. Um, we have a picture of Red Wall voters as if they're somehow totally different from the rest of the electorate. If you look at the work done by think tanks such as Onward, it shows that the Tory voters in Red Wall seats are not some peculiar sect that have to be pandered to well, honestly, by a set of so statements right. different from the, what the rest of the electorate wants to hear. They're people who probably own their own home. They've maybe got rather an expensive mortgage. They're probably working in the private sector. They're not some mysterious group of people living in Bolton who have different values from the rest of the country. And if the Conservative Party just relaxes about Red Wall and says there are lots of decent, normal, classic Tories out there mm -hmm. and will appeal to them with classic Tory messages, I think that's a much more productive approach. I think, the, the, I think you're right that there has been a fundamental and quite patronising at times misunderstanding mm. of what Red Wall voters mm. are about. There are fundamental differences between what Tory voters in Surrey, for example, want, and particularly when it comes to planning and housing and how things play out differently in the North. That is fundamental. It's a real problem for the Tories and a, a difficult one to square. But actually coming back to why has Esther McVeigh been appointed... I, I go back to this idea that if you don't lead or have a narrative or a very clear direction of travel, you will end yeah. up being torn yeah, bit by bit by bits of your party. And we will wait to see what happens after tomorrow's Supreme Court ruling on Rwanda. That will be the moment for Suella Braverman, mm -hmm. if there is one. And no matter which way it goes, I suspect that will be the time she chooses to speak. But how big is the group of Tories that are supporting her inside Westminster? And how vocal are they willing to be when there's only one so far who's come out with a letter of no confidence and a real feeling that there's no way of removing the Prime Minister at this point? It wouldn't be... I mean, it would be mad to do so. So where do you go from here? I think it was a nod to that group of mm -hmm. Conservatives, but I think it muddies the waters when it comes to trying to give a direct and clear message. Yeah. Mm. OK, we've got about 20 minutes left, so I want to come out to audience questions now. I'm going to take questions in groups of three. If you could uh, let me know your name um, and where you're from. And given that we are quite pressed for time, can I ask that you ask questions rather than give comments, please? <laughs> if you're in the uh, adjacent room, then do stick your head around the door if you'd like to ask a question. OK, I've got one here. I've got one there and I've got one here. My name is Douglas Blawson, Cambridge University, Land Society. Um, my daughter is a um, deputy head of a um, primary school in central London, and she spends a lot of her time changing nappies for seven- and eight-year-old boys and girls. I don't see anything that touches 
these pro social problems from either party at the moment, but certainly there's no connect with the Conservative Party. And I just wondered um, if there is any social policy and social awareness, and, and it's very well talking about incentives for businesses, which we've been giving for the last 20 years, but it hasn't filtered down, and we're the most unequal society um, that we've uh, in, in Europe, or one of the most. Thank you. Just here. Hello, uh, my, name, my name is Nicholas, and um, my question to you um, is I'd like to know um, when the mental health when they're going to reform the um, Mental Health Act. Thank you, and sorry, I was also the person behind her. Hi, I'm Hattie Simpson. I'm an A-level student. Um, regarding the lack of narrative, uh, how much can we attribute this to the seeming gradual decline of collective responsibilities in both the Conservative and Labour parties? Thank you. And then one last one here. Hi, uh, Rayford Dinn from the FT. Um, just a question for Lord Mandelson. Um, in terms of yesterday's reshuffle, it does appear that the government has made efforts to move towards a more sort of moderate ground. I just wondered, you know, how can Starmer head off being outflanked on the centre? Okay, so we've got... Are the parties really in touch with the social problems the country's facing? Um, reforming the Mental Health Act, collective responsibility and... Mental Health yeah, Mental Health Act, exactly. And then, Peter, particularly to you, was yesterday a play for the centre ground. Given that you had a specific question, I'll come to you first and then work our way around. Well, yesterday it might have been a play for the centre ground, but today I'm not so sure and tomorrow it may be different. And that's the problem with Rishi Sunak. I mean, I don't mean that facetiously. What I mean is, is this a piece of window dressing and a piece of theatre in bringing David back uh, as Foreign Secretary? Or does it represent a genuine strategic reset of his government? I don't think we know. I can hazard a guess, which is that, you know, given that he was, you know, all anti the status quo and 30 years of failed leadership last month, and this month is bringing David Cameron back, a failed leader, to his own government, it would seem point to a lack of consistency. That's all I would say. And uh, I, I, I think that they are torn. I mean, genuinely torn. Um, you know, some of them feel that their electoral fortunes depend on them reaching, as it were, into the centre ground and bringing people back towards the Conservative Party. Others uh, 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 believe, know that their main threat is the reform party, but the party which is further to the right of them, and they've got to sort of, you know, stop any sort of sliding of votes away from their party to the right. So it becomes anti-immigration, it becomes small boats, it becomes anti-trans, it becomes woke, it becomes this, it becomes that. Um, none of which, by the way, I think, you know, butters many parsnips with the electorate. I rather agree uh, with David. I mean, you talk about the Red Wall. I was a, a Red Wall MP uh, for many years, a Member of Parliament uh, for Hartlepool. I think I got to know my constituents uh, uh, fairly well, and I think they got to know me fairly well. And I tell you, it didn't make a jot of difference to them that I was gay. Not a jot. I mean, they're not interested in whether I'm gay or not, or, and if there are people you know, who've got uh, gender issues, uh, then they will respect them and have some sympathy, and it's for the family 
you know, to support them and for the state where needed and necessary to, to, to help. And so it goes on. I mean, they're, they're not sort of anti-immigrant, but they are worried, it is true, about public services. And if they feel public services are deteriorating and giving them not as good a service as they want, then they might say, well, this is because, um, you know, there are too many people coming into the country who are placing excessive demands on our public services. And by the way, we still have 600 or 700,000 net immigration, uh, net migration into the country, despite all that the Conservatives uh, are, are saying. But here's the issue, and it goes back to Douglas's issue. Uh, 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 you know, the Conservatives are, they are torn between saying they want to be socially aware and they want a government to take responsibility where appropriate, but at the same time uh, want to tell everyone to stop looking to the state for solutions. And you see both of these mindsets, it's a sort of bifurcated um, uh, um, uh, sort of outlook that, that they have. On the one hand, you know, they know that the government has got to do more and got to take responsibility, um, on the other hand, they know that we're in a fiscal deep hole, but also uh, that they, they, they want to sort of almost sort of staunch this instinct that they feel is growing in the country, that the state can solve everything, and they want to reverse that. So they're all, these competing philosophical views and outlooks, um, you know, are jockeying around in the sort of heads of the uh, government. And I doubt whether... Sunak will want to or be able to resolve them between now and the election because to do so means making a choice. He has to pick one side or the other. And I don't think he's prepared to do that, not least because uh, it will lead or spark to further uh, divisions in his own party and he doesn't want those to play out before the election. Thank you, Peter. Kelly. So just to, just to pick up on two of the questions, one around mental health and one around effectively early intervention which is at the most formative stage of brain development for young children which you've touched on Douglas that your daughter is experiencing I think interesting that two questions have come up off the bat related to social policy areas and not economic policy areas because those are issues which are long-standing and worsening and you can see that on mental health with the ONS releases on well-being and we're in a well-being recession and it hasn't bounced back to where it was pre-pandemic but also you, you touched a little bit Douglas just on the behavior that you're seeing your daughter's seeing in schools what about the cognitive and the emotional development of children between the ages of zero and five that are coming into school you can see very clearly when they are wetting themselves uh, and that is something that your daughter is experiencing and I think at this point in time when you look at who the public trust to deal with some of the more social policy issues like education in the round rather than those specific issues they will tell you Labour more the Conservatives in fact on almost every policy issue they will currently say Labour rather than Conservatives apart from defence and on the economy it's fairly equal measured um, but I, I do think for whatever government comes in both mental health has been a growing challenge in the country and actually the, the pandemic has set back some of the challenges we saw in the early years, 
settings. And I know Andrea, Andrea Ledsom has been doing some work. The uh, Princess of Wales has been doing some work around this, trying to highlight the issues as well, because it is not just a government issue. It starts in the home, in the communities, with parents and families. Um, so I, I agree they're big issues. Mostly Labour would be trusted on them today. I can't tell you about when the Act will be reformed, but perhaps some others can. And yeah, indeed. Again, another another long-standing issue which has worsened in recent years, which a, a government, I'm not sure whether this one, uh, just as David was saying, will have the, the time or the focus indeed. in the same way that perhaps... A, I've never known a time when in my own party uh, there has been more discussion about mental health issues than now. Mm. I, I don't remember it pre-97. I'm very strongly aware of it now. Kate? Uh, on the mental health point specifically, the most recent answer from the government that I can give you is that they are reviewing the outcome of pre-scrutiny on that act mm -hmm. and there will be a decision in due course. So I can't give you any timeline on that, but we did ask after the King's speech, so that's the most up-to-date I can give you on that. Um, on what you were talking about in schools, I think there is a recognition that it's an issue. Andrea Ledsom has just been given a, a role in the Department of Health, so there's an indication that the government recognises it, but it goes back to public services funding and some pretty big questions about the NHS and, and cash and schools too. Uh, on the narrative question, I actually think it's the other way around. I think the reason why we're seeing less people not sticking to collective responsibility is because there is no clear narrative. Mm. And when there is a vacuum, what you get is people who think they know better, or at least have a better story, will start telling it. And that's what you saw with Suella Braverman, who was so confident in her own story that she was telling it in publicly in the newspapers. And that only happens, in my opinion, and you, are, you will know better than me, when you don't have a clear story to tell yourself. Mm. David, and I might ask you particularly again about that collective responsibility question. Yeah. I mean, first, it was, it was indeed significant that we've just had two questions about social policy. Uh, and both very important questions. I would say COVID does hang over all of this, yeah. um, both in terms of making some of these problems worse. Uh, in, it means that an extraordinary amount of ministerial kind of bandwidth still goes on post-COVID recovery, particularly in healthcare. Mm. So it has had, a, it's created a much tougher environment for innovations in social policy, but certainly on the Mental Health Act, there is a recognition that there is a, a need for further change. Uh, and I would just say, Douglas, just to, on one point, on inequality, if you look at the data, income inequality in Britain has not shifted really since the 1990s. There was an increase during the 1980s, associated also incidentally with high rates of growth, but it's been pretty stable since the 1990s. And if anything, post the crash in the coalition, at least because bankers' bonuses and everything being reduced, if anything, it was a slight narrowing. What has happened is that wealth has grown relative to income, and as wealth is more unequally distributed than income, we're a society where wealth matters more, and that has driven a sense of greater inequality, but it's not greater income inequality. On the narrative question, um, I think it is a very fair point that it comes from a kind of central drive from... Uh, ministers at the top, from Cabinet, from Downing Street. And I think there is, behind the exchanges we've been having, a sense of what that could look like. Um, one of the reasons for the confusion and difficulties within the Conservative Party is if you look at the older voters who are uh, such an important element of electoral support for Conservatives, these older voters 
like a narrative about rolling back the state and personal responsibility, but are themselves by far the biggest recipients of a very large state. They have the triple lock and the NHS, which is predominantly for older people. So this is a lived problem amongst Tory voters who are themselves, who are by far the receivers of the, and indeed the welfare state is busy being reshaped. So it's to focus on services and funding for them. And part of what I would like to see as a narrative there, which I do, is there are a lot of young people who aren't a bunch of, they're, they're not a sort of bunch of woke people who've opted out of mainstream values. They're not a bunch of Marxist plotting revolution. They want a decent job and to own a home of their own. These are people who are potentially recruits to conservative vote if you reach out beyond uh, your uh, older core. And we did publish some research at Resolution recently which showed there's now a significant number of older voters who are so worried about the economic prospects for children, grandchildren, nephews, nieces, who they know, that you can appeal to the older voters yeah. with a much more direct focus on opportunities for the next generation. Mm, thank you, David. We're getting close to running out of time, so I want to make sure that we've had a few questions from the um, online audience. And so, first, how do you gain public support for sensible and realistic long-term planning, as opposed to over-promising for political gain? <coughs> How can parties signal change post-election if there's little scope for spending? And then perhaps one for us all to finish on, when is the next general election going to take place? <laughs> Kate, I'm going to start with you this time, if that's okay. So I have already, I've already said I think the next election should be in May. Um, I don't know whether that's what the party, the, the Tories will do, but it would be my advice if I were advising them, which uh, thankfully I'm not. Um, there is Downing Street is still saying October. I think that could shift. I think I think a lot of things could shift that, but I think that May would be a, a good a good place for many many reasons. The local you know the local elections, also just the fact that we are all sat here in this room talking about a lack of direction, lack of narrative. There is only so long you can sustain under those conditions unless you change things. And I think unless what's happened in the reshuffle and the autumn statement can significantly change things, then that is fairly set. Uh, how do you how do you generate support for long term? Yeah, how do you you know how do you get people bought into the big long term things rather? Than I think it's what promising. Peter was saying. That you need to have somebody who can mm. who can tell a story and tell it well. And actually, I think people in the country recognise that yeah. things are not good. Nobody's yeah. daft, right? Everybody knows that food is more expensive. Everybody knows that rent's more expensive. Everybody knows the truth. But there is somebody who needs to articulate a way of a way of getting, and that's about honesty. I think I think it is about honesty and credibility, and repeating the same message with a, a view to going somewhere. Um, and that probably answers the other question about how to signal change too. Thank you, David. Yeah, I mean, I think on um, on kind of how you signal change, especially in a tough fiscal environment, you saw examples of that in the King's speech, um, measures on AI. Um, uh, innovation, uh, data, the right use of data for public services and others, you know, working out what a sensible regime is for data protection, which may not be as, as heavy-handed as the GDPR. So you can, you can, in the choices you make on what you're going to legislate about, you can signal priorities. And there was that element, though I take Peter's point. There are other elements as well. And so, um, but you've got, to be, you've got to be consistent. As to when the next election could or should be. Um, I guess, I think the autumn is the likeliest. It's very hard 
for a prime minister to call an election if you are behind in the polls. And there seems to be very unlikely any scenario where any narrowing has moved far enough by May. On the other hand, going through the winter, um, January, it's the, that doesn't sound like a good environment for any kind of positive message. So I, I think we will end up Sunday in October. Thank you. Peter? Well, I think there's a bit of a rule that kicks in that when things are not good, postponing the evil day gives you simply time for things to get worse. <laughs> um, and I, th I remember 1997 mm -hmm. when John Major ran down the clock. Um, and honestly, mm -hmm. the media were just counting, counting the days, counting the hours, and everything that happened was magnified out of all proportion. <laughs> Every sort of little dalliance or yeah. mini scandal or, you know, whatever was happening, it was all blown up out of all proportion against the government. We all basically, we had to, was to sit back and sort of watch all mm. this going on. Um, obviously, we did a little bit more in our campaign than that. Um, <laughs> it was, after all, a brilliant campaign. But anyway, <laughs> um, but, but basically, just... You know, care for what you wish for. Mm. Postponement can bring further strife and grief uh, uh, rather than allowing things to get better. Although I have to say, you know, if, uh, if the Bank of England are right and that there's no early prospect of any sort of real interest rate borrowing cost <coughs> relief mm. kicking into in and uh, the earliest at the back end of next year, uh, it would seem that a feel-good feeling is not going to return uh, uh, to the economy and people's living standards, uh, and therefore that would invite going later uh, than, uh, than earlier. Can I just say this about you know, the, the long term? There is nothing in any of Starmer's five missions that would allow change to be turned on like a light switch. Mm. Nothing. I mean, whether it be economic growth, <coughs> sustained uh, levels of public uh, and private investment that's got to be achieved. And by the way, a lot of that is not going to be public investment. It's going to be private investment. It's going to be private capital. And we are competing internationally. Yeah. Those investors have options. And they're going to look at Britain and say, do you have a half-decent government that seems to be in charge and knows what it's doing and is pursuing a sort of path of continuity mm. in their approach to managing their affairs uh, and the economy. Is there regulatory stability? Um, what's the tax situation that's on offer? What's the labour market reform that the government's going to undertake? Is that going to be moderate and sensible or is it going to be rather more sort of extreme sounding in which case people international investors will worry uh, about what they're uh, what they're coming into the government says that it's going to undertake this radical uh, reform of the planning system my god do we need it i mean i'd say the planning reform labor market and skill uh, raising and creating a sort of total business environment that is inviting and attractive for international investors are the three main things which are holding our economy right and the three main things that have got to be got right uh, in the economy if we're going to achieve that uh, economic growth model. But 
you know, getting the National Health Service up, standing on its feet again, and reform through the use of data and mm. AI, expanding educational opportunity so that we're both sustaining university level education, but also creating many more uh, opportunities uh, for young people who don't choose to go to university, but nonetheless want to continue uh, their education uh, in some way. How we're going to create uh, the opportunities for young people you know, to buy or rent a decent house to start a family, I'd say, is one of the biggest challenges, which ain't going to be turned on and off like uh, a, a light switch. How we're going to continue the energy uh, transition in a fair, cost-effective way that people feel uh, that they can go along with, and how we're going to deal with that empowerment of local communities that's going to enable people, you know, to to stabilize their communities and, by the way, fight crime as well. Now, all these things require long-term, consistently pursued, clearly set out goals and policies. And that's the job now, in the coming year, of my colleagues in the Labour Party to set that out, not only in a hopeful and optimistic way, but in a realistic and credible way as well. People are not going to be taken for mugs. We've had this pantomime going on, we've been fed all, this, all these lies, they want to be told the truth but they want to be given real sense of hope that things can change a corner, that we really can start a new chapter uh, in our national story and we're going to do that by credible means. That's what we've got to offer. Thanks, I'll be, I'll be brief because I um, firstly on the signalling change when you've got no money. One of the challenges we've got is public services. And the thing that people experience is the front line of the government, which is our healthcare workers, our school systems. If those start to deliver from a public perception better, that will be a really quick signal for people. And it's not necessarily about more money, but it's more about how, how they're operating and how they're engaging with the public. That could be something delivered through government. And then how you can get public support for long-term planning. We, we see in a lot of the major investments, which are things like infrastructure, huge investment required, long time frames as well. And for those, the public, they, they struggle to understand that level of scale of investment and when the outcome's going to be delivered. And the thing that really helps, deliberative work. So really bringing the public with you, engaging them in the decisions you have to make, and not just doing to, but doing with the general public. So engaging with them. And then lastly, on when an election would be called, I'll just leave you with this thought. No party, this is looking back at data since 1964, one year out, no party with 10 or more points ahead in the polls has ever failed to get the most votes at the election. 2010, it was a very close, uh, a very sort of minor majority, but no party has failed to get the most votes when they were this far ahead. I'll leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Kelly. Okay, we're already slightly over time, so I'm going to have to wrap it up there, I'm afraid. Thank you so much to our fantastic panel. That was brilliant. Thank you. Thank you.
thank you also to our audience in person online for your fantastic questions. Sorry we didn't get through as many of them as we might have. Um, and for those of you interested in when the next election might take place, the Institute for Government has an excellent explainer on that. So do visit our website for all relevant you something about your online questions. Please do. I, I was listening to an event from this great organisation not so long ago. And it was about the economy, and I put in a question, which I thought was not a stupid question, <laughs> by the way. Was I chairing it, Peter? I think you possibly were. <laughs> I wasn't called. I, my question was not uh, uh, taken up, and afterwards it was explained that they didn't really think it was me who was asking it. it was <laughs> Next time we'll know it's you, and we'll definitely ask the question. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.